We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. Our text this morning is found in the concluding verses of the chapter, verses 20 through 22. We hear the word of God in Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, or to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father." Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far we read from God's infallibly inspired word. As I said, our text this morning is found in the concluding verses of this beautiful chapter, Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22, where we read, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, do you love the church? Love for the church is a mark of the true Christian. Devotion to the church of Jesus Christ is the duty as well as the privilege given to us as God's children. 
The reason for this is to be found in what the church is. She is the bride of Christ. She is the dwelling place of God. The mother of believers. She is the body of Christ. You, Linden Protestant Reformed Church, are faithful manifestation of that body. Therefore, the believer in Christ loves the church even as he loves Christ. We give expression to that love as we gather on the Lord's Day and sing, as we have from Psalm 84, O lovely Lord of hosts to me, the tabernacles of thy grace, O how I long, yea, faint to see thy hallowed courts, thy dwelling place. We think of Psalm 137, the mournful cry of the captives in Babylon who sat down and wept when they remembered Zion. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. Her honor lay in the dust. Her people were scattered. And the public worship of Jehovah on Mount Zion had been abolished. And their captors jeeringly required of them a song of mirth and joy. And yet their harps could not comply. No mirth, no joy was possible while they were separated from Zion, the church. And in Babylon they made a vow. O Zion, fair God's holy hill, wherein our God delights to dwell, let my right hand forget her skill, if I forget to love thee well. Let my tongue from utterance cease, if any earthly joy to me be dear as Zion's joy and peace." Already centuries before our text was written, the inspired psalmist of Israel sang, Zion founded on the mountains, God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city, who can all thy glory tell? And that's really the theme of the entire letter to the Ephesians, the glory of the church. Paul has already described the glory of the church in Christ when he has begun this epistle with his apostolic benediction. And then he adds, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And you have that keynote in Christ that runs through the entire epistle, always showing forth the glory of God as it's reflected in us by, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have the well-known contrast at the beginning of this second chapter. And you but God... Paul describes our natural depravity as we are conceived and born in sin, reminding us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, a part of this present evil world under the power of Satan, fulfilling the desires and lusts of the flesh by nature, children of wrath, even as all the rest. And then you have the great contrast. But God rich in mercy, motivated by his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive and raised us with Christ, even exalted us with him in heavenly glory, so that in Christ all our salvation is complete and eternally secure. Then Paul goes on to remind us of the distinction between Jew and Gentile. For even when God was gathering in his elect from the Jews, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenant of promise. Notice, 
In verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. Can you imagine a worse situation than that? No hope without God? But God now also gathers from the Gentiles, his elect, so that we who were afar off are brought near. And that middle wall of separation is broken away so that we are no more strangers and foreigners, but our fellow citizens belonging to the same household of God, for Jew and Gentile alike, for all God's elect, there is that divine assurance, for by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the Apostle Paul sees the church, God's elect, holy, Catholic church, he sees that church as it's being gathered in this present time, and as we are members of it, and as we as congregation are a manifestation of it, and as we are even used by God toward the ingathering of the saints and the completion of God's church or his house in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in this light that we consider our text this morning under the theme, Building the House of God. And we notice, first of all, the house, secondly, the foundation, and finally, the construction. The apostle here in our text is plainly using a figure. And yet at the same time, he applies the figure to its reality. He uses the figure of a foundation and explains that this foundation is the apostles and prophets. He refers to the cornerstone and immediately adds that this is Christ Jesus. He speaks of the house built upon the foundation, fitly framed together, and points out to us that this house is the dwelling place of God, where God dwells through his Spirit. And then he concludes that we also are set into that building as separate stones, each in our place, and yet together making that perfect unity of the church, the house of God. No doubt the Apostle Paul had in mind the temple of the old dispensation. As you know, that temple was the center of Israel's typical worship. Canaan was the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But the center of Canaan was Jerusalem, the holy city. And the heart of the holy city was the temple where God dwelt behind the veil in the most holy place. There in the temple stood the altar of burnt offering as a constant reminder that Israel was a sinful people. And yet at the same time, that altar symbolized the blood of atonement that took away the sins of the people. Christ was represented there in the priest as well as in the sacrifice. And through Christ, the people had access to God. There, God's people experienced covenant fellowship with the only true and living God. There, they experienced the bond of faith that united them in the Lord, even as they looked forward in hope for better things to come. For they, the church, were, after all, the house, the dwelling place of God. God was in the midst of them, and therefore they stood unmoved. And with this figure in mind, the apostle speaks of a building that's under construction. It's gradually taking shape and form as every stone is put in its own place, each one fitting in with all the other stones and with all the rest of the building, 
ultimately to reveal its complete and perfect unity in Christ. Forgetting the figure for a moment and bearing in mind that these are not dead but living stones, the apostle feels free to say that this building grows, grows as it were as a plant, grows to its full capacity or to go back to the figure again, grows into an immense and beautiful temple of God. Now there are certain details about this building that we should notice. First of all, of course, a building calls for a plan. Even when we would desire to build a church facility or a house, Carefully, we would prepare the plans. We would likely hire an architect to draw up prints of our proposed structures so that every detail of that house may be worked out beforehand, even to the smallest detail. We plan the size and shape of the building, the number of doors and windows, the location of each. We determine each room where it shall be and the size of it. We decide on all the various materials to be used, even down to electrical outlets and heating and cooling units and every detail. All this is done before any work is started or even the foundation is laid. Now this is, of course, but a very vague earthly picture of God's sovereign and eternal predestination of his church. Eternally, God has before him his glorious house as it will be realized in all of its perfection in the new creation. And remember, we cannot say that God made those plans for his house or that he gradually formulated them in his own mind as if there were a span in eternity when God was without the perfect house that he builds. That cannot be, for God does not change and God does not grow richer in carrying out his eternal thoughts according to the purpose of his will. The sovereign architect eternally has before him his Christ, His great servant in his house and in Christ has before him, even in his heart and mind, his church chosen in Christ unto everlasting life. God has chosen Christ as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal cause and the ultimate purpose of all God's works. Who but the Son the perfect likeness and reflection of the Father's glory could hold such a unique place in the mind of God. God gave to Christ a people chosen in Christ to show forth the praises of God's name. That people consists of a definite number of specific elect, no more, no less, but each one chosen to have his or her own place in the church of God. Christ is the head. We are the members of his body. As the head cannot exist without the body, so the body cannot exist without the head. Christ is the cornerstone. We are the stones of God's temple. Each one fits their own place according to the eternal divine wisdom. And no one else could possibly fit in that place. Without each place being filled, the temple would not be complete. Its unity, harmony, beauty would be ruined, spoiled. God would not attain his glory. But don't forget, that also applies to the scaffolding of the building. 
God sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life, but he also determines the reprobate to perish in their sins. And even the reprobate must serve their purpose toward the construction of God's temple, even as the chaff must serve the wheat. In spite of themselves, they are, we might say, the scaffolding used by God during this present time to erect his church. And the present we can have difficulty sometimes even distinguishing between the building and the scaffolding. But God knows his own. And ultimately the scaffolding is pulled away and is burned up and the building stands forth in all of its splendor to the praise of the master builder, God Almighty. Close connection, notice that the church of God answers perfectly to the plans and purposes of the architect in unity and harmony and perfection and beauty. Here, beloved, we must be careful not to regard the things that we see with these physical eyes But we must look with the eye of faith upon the things we do not see. In faith, based upon the scriptures, we confess, as we will again this evening, the Lord willing, and holy Catholic Church. And that bears renewed emphasis in our days. The very idea of an holy Catholic Church as taught in the scriptures and our confessions, and here specifically in our text, That very idea is ridiculed and scorned and despised. And shameful things are spoken of this church in her true spiritual essence. And very often an outward, superficial unity is sought in this world, consisting of all kinds of federations and even all kinds of beliefs so that numerically the church may be strong and pretentious in the midst of the world, and the antithetical position of the church over against the world of unbelief is denied, and compromise with the world is sought. And much of the church busies herself with a social agenda and with political affairs rather than with her special distinction and purity. And by doing that, the so-called church ultimately becomes the great harlot, riding on the red beast, directing and cooperating with the Antichrist. And the faithful church becomes the object of mockery and hatred of the world and is numerically small weak in comparison, becomes more and more antithetically opposed to the world, even as light opposes darkness, the true spiritual distinction becomes ever more evident. The individual members of the church become ever more strangers, aliens upon the earth, seeking with increasing longing her heavenly perfection. More and more her place is small here in the earth. And the world of unbelief has tolerance for everyone and everything except the faithful church. Yet, the church is holy, even as a temple is holy. The individual believer is redeemed, justified, and sanctified in Christ. And so the scripture does not hesitate to say that those who are born of God are without sin. From the viewpoint of that new life in Christ, 
Still more, they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, heirs of the life to come. They are the family of God, his sons and daughters adopted through the shed blood of Christ. They are Christ's holy bride. Together, they are stones of his temple. And so they are also addressed as saints in Christ Jesus, holy ones set apart unto the service of the living God. That's also our comfort. Even while we are yet deeply conscious of our daily sin and misery, our guilt, even while we are often scorned in the midst of this world. In addition, the church is one. The generations of the elect may extend from paradise in the beginning to the end of history. God's people may be gathered from every nation, tongue, and tribe on the earth. Outwardly, there may often seem to be far more division than unity among them, even as they are torn apart by sin and the evil threats and snares of Satan. Yet, they are one in Christ. With one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, united unto one God to whom they bring the glory forever. And there is also the communion of saints. There is the common bond of faith that unites the true people of God. And we are drawn to one another. We seek the welfare of each other through that common bond of faith so that we can sincerely say, this is my father, this is my mother, this is my brother, this is my sister who does the will of my heavenly father. We bear each other's burdens in the love of Christ. The third place we should notice yet that this building referred to in our text is a temple. Now a temple may be very impressive because of its size or because of its unique architecture, because of its beauty or majesty. And all this is certainly true of the temple of our God as will become evident in the new creation when that multitude which no man can number is united as saints in Christ before God's throne. But the real importance of a temple is the fact that it is the house of God. God dwells there. God is the light that radiates Throughout the temple, God's glory shines through every part of the building. And so our text speaks of a habitation of God. And it stresses that the church is, in a word, God's home. And God's home means, in a word, fellowship. There we experience the covenant fellowship of God and his people. There is the intimate communion of life that is here reflected on earth in the relationships of family, husband and wife, parents and children. God is in the midst of her. No wonder that the psalmist almost shouted in ecstasy, Glorious things of thee are spoken, city blessed of God the Lord. Yes, glorious things. For we, beloved, are God's house, God's dwelling place, chosen, prepared to show forth the praises of his name. Although the main thought of our text centers around this house, their strong emphasis also laid upon the foundation. And along with the foundation on the cornerstone, without which the house of God could never exist nor rise up to its ultimate perfection. 
Our attention must be focused upon that cornerstone. This figure appears more often in the New Testament scriptures along with the figure of the temple. And it's taken, no doubt, from Psalm 118. There we read of the stone which the builders refused and how it has become the head of the corner. This stands out as something very marvelous in our eyes just because it is so obviously Jehovah's work and his alone as a wonder of grace. And it's not so hard to visualize the picture here. Here among all the materials collected together for the building of Solomon's temple is one large, seemingly cumbersome stone. And it simply doesn't seem to fit with the plans of the builders. It always seems to interfere with all their reckonings. This stone never fits until the builders learn that it is the chief cornerstone chosen of God and precious. And that, of course, was prophecy. And its real fulfillment came when Annas and Caiaphas, along with Judas and Herod and Pilate, even with the Sanhedrin and all the people, joined together to condemn Jesus to the accursed death of the cross. They found no place in their idea of the church for Jesus, the Christ of the Scriptures, no more than do the modernists of our day. But even though they gave him over unto death and the curse, God justified him, raised him from the dead, exalted him with a name that is above every name, even as head of the church in the highest heavens, he is the cornerstone. Now a cornerstone in ancient times was a very important part of the foundation and therefore of the entire structure. Today, as you probably know, a cornerstone is mainly symbolic and usually mainly ornamental. But according to the figure, as it's used in the scriptures, it is the stone upon which the entire building rests and all the other foundation stones lean toward that one massive, beautiful cornerstone so that this one stone gives stability and unity and even beauty to the entire building. Christ, Scripture says, is that cornerstone. He is chosen of God as the elect, the firstborn among many brethren. God chose us in Christ, and he sees us in Christ, and he blesses us in him, and joins us to him in perfect unity with him eternally. Christ is the rock upon which we are founded, And that's true in the most absolute sense of the word. Christ is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is made unto us of God wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Our life is hid with Christ in God eternally. As we said before, we can speak of a holy church because we are holy in Christ. We can speak of a Catholic or universal church because our unity is in Christ. He is the fullness of all our life and salvation. But now besides the cornerstone, there is also mentioned the foundation And this foundation is referred to as the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's some difference of opinion 
as to whether the term prophets here refers to the prophets of the old dispensation or to those who were yet in the early church. Prophet Agabus, for example, is mentioned in the book of Acts. You can raise arguments to defend either position, but without going into further detail, I prefer to think especially of the prophets of the Old Testament time here. It's true, as some point out, that the apostles are mentioned first and then prophets, while in order of time the prophets were first, but writing to the church of the new dispensation, the Apostle Paul could very well refer to the apostles first because they proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises that were spoken by the prophets of old. And surely the prophets of the old dispensation are as much the foundation of the church as are the apostles of the new. But the important question arises... What is really meant here by the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church? Surely that cannot refer to them simply as individual persons, but rather it must refer to them in their office or in their capacity as prophets and apostles. As such, they were the bearers of the word of God. God filled them with his spirit so that Christ, the great office bearer, spoke through them. And that which they spoke is infallibly recorded and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. These Scriptures, therefore, are the foundation of the church. And that's all the more evident from the fact that the Scriptures reveal to us the Christ who is the rock, the cornerstone upon which the church rests and from which it has all its existence. And we can't emphasize too strongly today that the infallibly inspired Word of God as we have it in the Scriptures is the foundation of the church. Many would deny an infallible Bible, along with verbal, word-for-word inspiration. Many even deny the truth as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures. They don't want any objective truth because they want no objective word. And then God becomes whatever we would imagine him to be, and Christ likewise becomes a figment of the imagination And then faith is no more than personal feelings or experience. But then we've lost all, absolutely all that is of any real value in our lives. But from this results the sad tragedy that the power of the word is denied. And the church institute means very little anymore. And the preaching of the word is neglected or even replaced. You may have a dialogue or a group discussion or a movie or a play or musical numbers or liturgical dance. These things are considered far more effective than the preaching of the word. And the offices in the church mean nothing and Christ's word of power means nothing so that All that remains is a form of godliness lacking the very power of the Spirit of Christ. Therefore, we must maintain that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the infallibly inspired Word of God is the only sure foundation And the preaching of the word, no matter how it is ridiculed, must be maintained as the divinely given means of grace, along with the proper administration of the sacraments. Christ refuses to work through other means. We 
must always go back to the law and the prophets or there will be no dawn for us. The word of God is the only foundation upon which God builds his church. And finally, we must consider too the construction of the temple. Our text speaks of that also as a process that's carried on throughout history, even to the end of time. And we must notice then, first of all, the builder. And from the outset, I must emphasize that the builder is not man. How often people would like to take matters into their own hands and seek their own means and strategies to gather the church or take credit for supposedly winning souls for Jesus. But God is the only builder. It's the plain teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism. Where in Lord's Day 21, question 54, we are asked, What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? And the answer is given that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his Spirit and Word out of the whole human race a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am, and forever shall remain a living member thereof. And that's in harmony with the scriptures which stress throughout that the Lord builds the church. You can think, for example, in the little book of Ezra. It deals with the rebuilding of the earthly temple after the days of the captivity in Babylon. And how beautifully it's emphasized in the book of Ezra that it was the Lord's work. The Lord's work. Repeatedly we read, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And then we hasten to add that God builds His church through Jesus Christ. It's always Christ who is now exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ knows his sheep and calls them by name. And they hear his voice and they come to him. Christ speaks of other sheep that he has apart from the elect Jews which he must also gather in so that there will be eternally one flock, one fold. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his sheep. He gathers them by his word and spirit, always by the preaching of the word through the operation of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect. There can be no preaching except Christ calls. And those whom Christ calls are official ambassadors of God through whom the spirit works. We must maintain the official preaching of the word and official administration of the sacraments. Elders and deacons who bring the word of Christ, speaking and acting in Christ's name in their respective offices. No other means of grace. Christ refuses to work in any other way. And so it is incumbent upon us to ever pray that God will raise up men also in our midst for the ministry of the gospel. The need is great. Then, beloved, our text becomes very personal. And it speaks, first of all, of the fact that each of us is build it together for a home of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, calls us out of darkness into God's marvelous light, works faith in our regenerated hearts, justifies us, sanctifies us, preserves us in living hope even unto the day 
of our perfect salvation, there's always the living power of Christ that works within our hearts. We live, yet no more we, but Christ lives in us. And each one of us grows, as it were, into our own place in that body. And each of us ought to respect and appreciate each other in the particular place God has given. Must honor and appreciate our diversity. Each member, each living stone is unique. Various gifts and abilities, various strengths, also weaknesses, It doesn't mean that we overlook sin or error, but it means that we would deal with it in the right way according to the Scriptures and the church order. It means we are ready to forgive one another. It means that we bear with each other's weaknesses. For each of us is united with all the other members of the body in intimate fellowship and love. And each one of us is being chipped and ground down and polished for our own place in God's temple, the place that only we can occupy. And so it is that when we are ready for that place and our place is ready for us, heaven cannot wait, but we are transferred out of the church militant into our own place in the church triumphant before the throne. Finally, we as willing instruments by His grace are presently called to work the work of the Lord toward the construction of His house. We, men, women, young people, even children, Be willing instruments in God's hand, prayerfully seeking to carry out His will. And the work we do in the church may seem so very, very insignificant. So insignificant, in fact, that it may appear to have no real lasting value in the completion of that great temple of our God. But let us ever remember the psalmist just to be a doorkeeper in the house of his God. So that however small and insignificant we may seem in the eyes of men, God carries out his work even through us. Let us therefore day by day labor prayerfully Together we may serve to the praise of the glory of the grace of Him who calls us. And so, beloved, I ask you again, do you love the church? The great reformer John Calvin once remarked in his institutes that no one can claim to have God for his father unless he has the church for his mother. Make no mistake, the church is where Christ is. And Christ is where the Word is faithfully preached and maintained in purity. Don't doubt the power and sufficiency of the preaching of the Word. Today, men, many fear that that Word can't gather the church. They fear that the preaching of the Word cannot keep the youth. They fear that the Word cannot comfort and strengthen God's people in all of their needs. And they fear that it cannot stand the test of so-called science. They fear that many are going to disapprove of that Word and mock them. Be not deceived. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation 
Christ and Him crucified is still the power of God and the wisdom of God. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified is still the way of demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Seek and ever abide in the faithful church, beloved, and love that church. Love this church. For love for the church is as a seed, a seed that is sown. And it sprouts, and it brings forth fruit. But understand that when we sow in disgust and contempt for God's church, another kind of fruit is produced a bitter fruit. But when, by the grace of God, love for the church permeates our homes and our congregation and our churches and sister churches and His faithful church throughout the world, when it dominates in our lives, then, by the grace of God, we will see Joyful sons and daughters singing with us, Blessed Zion, all our fountains are in thee. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we are amazed before the wonder of thy house thy temple, thy Zion, which is thy church, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, his beautiful bride, we can but humbly thank and praise thee that it hath pleased thee to make us living members of that body. It is by grace alone all praise Thanksgiving be unto Thee. We ask it with the remission of our many sins. In Jesus' name, Amen.